All right, happy new year to you and your family. I hope 2020 is off to a great start for you. Now, let me just say, as a church, we are incredibly excited about this new year, but I want to take a minute and just talk about 2019 for a second. Uh, just thank you, all of you who stayed and served, were part of our Christmas Eve services. We had our largest attendance ever at Christmas Eve, which was incredibly exciting. And, but on top of that, and more than that, and what we care about even more than that and are excited about more than that, is our Hold the Rope offering. And if you remember the Hold the Rope offering, some of you are new and welcome. Uh, let me just tell you about this for a second. <clears throat> for Hold the Rope, we decided this. We, we started this in 2018. We said, what would it look like at the end of the year to take an offering? Churches have done this before, but we said, take an offering. 100% of it's going to go outside of our church. 100% of it, it's going to go to a local, national, global partner. Um, and and we, So in 2018, we said, let's just do this. We're going to ask people to give a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and, and see what could happen. And so we, you know, in 2018, so last year, or two years ago now, I guess, um, we, we did it. We'd been in the building for one month. We said, hey, we're going to partner with these organizations. And we asked for you guys to give, and we all gave. And, and last year, in 2018, we raised $50,000. And everyone thought, well, that's great. And that was really, really exciting. So this year, we talked about three partners. We said, well, we got you know, Joe May here in Watown. Then we got Cam Triggs, and he's in West Orlando. And we're going to try to help him get into a kind of a permanent facility. And so we said, what would it look like? And, and since we've doubled since last year, you know, I thought I went to public high school, but I did basic math. And I thought, well, <laughs> the number of people doubled, so probably... Uh, the amount will double. So, you know, and, and by the way, this is good to know. Whenever you set a goal, you want to set a faith goal and a sight goal. You know, a faith goal is like, well, you know, by faith, God could possibly, and a sight is like, well, knowing all things and doing basic calculations this is what I hope for. So we were hoping for 100,000. We thought, well, you know, it'll double last year as well. You guys didn't just give the, to double or give to triple. We quadrupled what we gave the last year. $198,000. Um, and you look at that number, you go, who gave 17 cents? I don't know, Okay. <laughs> I don't know how that works. Uh, we got kids involved and everything else. It's very, very exciting. But here's what I love about this. Again, basic math. Uh, divided by three, it's like, what is that? $66,000. It's like, well, do you like to get a phone call with someone saying, hey, you know what? This is, this is all coming to you and your ministry. $66,000 to help you go further faster. I, am, I mean, I'm so excited about this. I'm so excited to give them phone calls this the next week and, and to help them. So we are incredibly excited about that. That's the first thing I want to tell you. Second thing, if you look, if you look around this room, this is the 545 service. Um, but, I, and, and we know this, let me actually, in fact, I got a picture from the, put up the 11 o'clock service, that was the lobby, okay, we had our, I believe it was our largest uh, service ever, the 11 o'clock service, so completely overflowing everywhere, people standing everywhere, the, the 4 o'clock service, completely full in this room, the 9, completely full in this room, uh, I say that because we know, and, and, you know, we just want to talk about these things and be honest about them and open about them and transparent, we know that we need a bigger building, we know that, it's like, you know, we can't do any more services than we're doing, um, and, and, and we don't, we don't ha have a building yet. We don't have an exact plan yet. We, we, you know, we're prayerfully walking through it. And what we want to let you know is that we're going to talk to you guys about it. We're going to be as open and honest about it as possible. We're praying that in 2020, the Lord would open up the right door for us to get into a larger facility so we can go deeper in discipleship, wider in evangelism mission. That's our hope. Now, in the meantime, here's what I want you guys to know. Uh, our heart for 2020 as elders, as staff, as a church, is this phrase, better before bigger. That's, that's our heart. We want to be, we want to be health, healthy before any more growth comes. We want to mature more before we have more. And that's going to be our heart. And so when we say better, what do we mean by better? We mean more faithful, more fruitful, focusing. We're asking this question, how can we make more disciples? How can we make better disciples in every area of ministry? So what we'd ask for you guys is, here's our hope. We're hoping by the end of February to call together our members for a member gathering and say, guys, here's what we think is happening. And there's some really exciting things that we're, we're hoping for. Um, but in the meantime, we're asking, would you pray with us and, and be part of trusting God as we look to the future and believe the future is as bright as the promises of God. So with that said, I'd love to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into the book of Daniel. Let's pray. Um, Lord, help us, please. We, we are so grateful to be generous, to be able to be a generous church, and to give away so much um, to these ministries. We pray for Joe May, Cam Triggs. We want to pray for them, for their ministries, Lord. Um, Lord, I would pray you'd give us wisdom as we think about what's next for us as a church, Lord, and help us to focus on being healthy, focus on being better. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to Two Cities. And you know, if you're new, this is a great time to be new, right? It's a new year, and we're going to be in a new series. So you can type to, turn to the book of Daniel. Um, if you have an actual Bible, it's kind of hard to find the book of Daniel. Don't be embarrassed. You can look at the table of contents if you want to. Um, the, the, the book of Daniel, here's a good way to find it, though. Find the really big prophets. If you, if you can find Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, it's right after Ezekiel. And, and I want to talk to you about Daniel today because I'm, I'm excited about this book. This is an exciting book, right? It's like, well, if you know anything about the book of Daniel, here's what you know. Um, you've got a fiery furnace. You've got, um, 
you've got Lion's Den, you've got miracles, you've got writing on the wall, um, you've got dreams, visions, prophecy. I mean, it's, it's a really, really exciting book. And, and it's written, and this is what's so important, it's written by Daniel, the guy who the book's named after. And Daniel's, they, they, they estimate, he's probably about 85 years old when he writes this book. And what he's doing is, he's in his 80s, and this, is, this, is, this would be a great goal for your life, for my life. He's in his 80s, and what he's done is for roughly 70 years, he lived a faithful, fruitful life in a non-Christian culture. Daniel's one of those guys who's going to end up spending his entire life living in exile, living away from the people of God, from the place of God, Jerusalem, and having to learn how to be a faithful Christian in a confused culture. Like, does that sound familiar? Yeah, right? And, and by the way, if you're in this room and you're older than you know, 50 or 60 years old, it's like, let me just tell you how valuable you are. And over 50 too, I mean, all of us are valuable. I'm just saying, if you're over 50 or 60 years old and, you, and you've been faithfully married and, and you love the Lord and you've got a worn out Bible and, and, and you've walked through suffering, it's like, we need to hear your story. I want you to understand, that's why the church is multi-generational. It's the wisdom of the old with the strength of the youth. That's the church. And it's like, you know, and, and this happens all the time. People come up to me after the service and um, a lot of times, well, I'll have older men and women come up to me. They'll be in their 50s, women in their 60s, and, and they'll say this to me often, because uh, I always ask, why did you come? A common answer. Uh, the reason I came is there's so many young people here. The reason I came is because I love single moms, and I want to invest in them. The reason I came is because I love young women, or I love young men. The reason I came is because I care about families, and I want to invest in children. It's like, there's all these people that are coming to invest. And see, what Daniel's going to do is he's writing this book, and this is why this is going to be so important for us. He's writing this book to tell us how we not just can survive, but how we can thrive in culture. And what I want us to see today is, and this is good because it's the beginning of the new year, is Daniel makes three decisions. You could call them three commitments. You could call them three resolutions. It doesn't really matter what you call them. But he makes three commitments uh, that, uh, of how he's going to live. And, and he does this as a young teenager. We'll see this. And I want us to see these three commitments. Here's the first commitment, and we'll see this in verses one and two. He's, he's going to commit this. He's going to say, I will, see, I will see the world through God's word. I will see the world, and all that I experience, I will see the world through the lens of God's word. And I want you to see this. So turn with me to verse one and two. If you see in verse 1 and 2, it says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So he was the king of God's people. But he wasn't a good king, and God's people were living rebellious lives. But in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, now he's a bad king. He's going to be a main character in this whole book, but he's a bad king, very powerful king. Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, so there's a war of kingdoms. Um, he came to Jerusalem, he besieged it. So verse 1 is history. Verse 2 is the divine interpretation of that history, and that's important to know, because the way the Bible works, and this will open the Bible to you in many ways if you've not heard this, is the Bible is event and divine interpretation of the event. The Bible gives us both, and they're both important, because it's kind of like, okay, so a 33-year-old Jewish guy dies on a cross. It's an event. Is it helpful? I don't know. Why? I don't know. It's like, I don't need the event. I need the event. What I need help with is the divine interpretation of that event. What was going on? And so what the Bible does here is, I want you to see this. Verse 2, and this is what I mean by seeing the world through the lens of the word of God, is that he's able to see situations and see that God's working in them, right? So look at verse 2. And the Lord gave. So that's going to be a common phrase, by the way, in, in this chapter. It'll appear three times. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So what he's saying here is, um, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar comes, he besieges the people of God, he takes them over, but this was all part of God's plan. So, and, and well, this is easy for us to see when we read verses one and two, because it's like, well, now we have the written down interpretation of you know, what happened. It's like, in your life, it's in my life too, and, and I don't mean any offense by this, but it's like, what's God doing in your life? Well, you really don't know. Okay, things are going well, or you're suffering, or marriage is hard, or you got a new job, or you got a lot of money, or you have a little money, and I don't know, you're mad at your mother-in-law. I mean, who knows? Christmas was terrible. Christmas was great. It's like, what's God doing? It's like, you actually don't know. And I don't know. Part of it is that you're wrestling with, like, Lord, what are you doing? I'm trusting your good God. I, I, I'm looking at scripture, maybe some principles of it, but I'm trying to understand this. And here's what he understands, and this is really important to understand too, is he understands that what, what God had been saying in his word for hundreds and hundreds of years, is if you sin, it will lead to suffering and slavery. That, I mean, that's a good summary of most of the Old Testament. God basically says, hey, if you continue in unrepentant sin, it will lead to slavery, it will lead to suffering. And God says the same thing to us, and we do the same thing the Israelites did, which we said, no, not really, not really. Not this area of my life, not if I only do it a couple times a month. 
you know, not, not if every other area of my life is cleaned up, you know. Uh, no, this won't happen. What we, all, what we see is uh, the people of God get enslaved. Now, when, we, when, when Americans think about slavery, there's two types of slavery. When we think about slavery, we tend to be, think about, um, I, I'm enslaved by something that I hate. And most Americans go, I'm not enslaved by something I hate. And it's like, you're not. That's what it means to be American in some ways. It's like, you know, you're American and you have at least an okay amount of money. Well, the more money you have, the more helpful it'll be that you will never be enslaved by something you hate, right? It's like, well, I don't like my school. Well, then transfer. Well, I don't like my boss. Well, then quit. Well, I don't like my neighborhood. Well, then move. It's like, well, that's really convenient. You have options that most of people throughout all of human history have never had. But because of that, you will never, most likely, you will never be enslaved by something that you hate. Now, who knows? There could be massive world events and something could happen, but for the most part, you'll probably never be enslaved by something you hate. Um, what ends up happening to most Americans, to all of us to some degree, is we become enslaved by something that we love. That's actually what's called addiction. The biblical word for addiction is slavery. Right? And you, you know this. You're like, I wish I didn't like her or text him all the time. Or I wish I, wish I didn't feel like I need to still get my prescription medicine even though I shouldn't be doing it and I'm taking extra amounts and I wish I, I wish I didn't feel like I needed to drink every night. Like I, I, I really wish that I didn't feel those ways. I'm actually, I'm actually enslaved by something that I love. And th this is what we begin to see in this. Now, the second thing that we see here is if you look, it says that they took the idols. This is verse two. They took the idols. This is what Nebuchadnezzar did. He took the idols and he brought them in, or he took the things from God's um, temple and he took them into the house of, it says twice, his gods. So this is idolatry. Now, We've talked here a lot, if you've been coming around for a while, we've talked a lot about idolatry. And the reason that we do that is because idolatry would be a, not a minor theme, it would be a mega theme in scripture. And, and um, idolatry is hard to see in our culture, right? So here's, here's a good definition of idolatry. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and we make it a God thing. Um, and it's hard to see in our culture because it's like, well, all right, what's wrong with marriage? Nothing. Until it becomes the most important thing in your life. Then it becomes a God thing and then it's corrupted. It's like, you know, what's wrong with money? It's like, that's what's so hard about it, nothing. You know, until it's all that you care about and all that you seek and all that you go after. It's like, well, what's wrong with a job? It's like, nothing. <laughs> it's really good, actually, until work workaholism comes into your life and you can't, you know, control yourself. And, you know, it, it, but it's hard to see idolatry in your culture. And, and this, is, this is interesting. So I heard a pastor one time. He said, he said he was over in India. And he was talking to this lady, and she was a, um, a Hindu, she, a Christian convert. She was, came out of Hinduism. And he was so impressed with her testimony, he said, I gotta bring you back to America, and you gotta share this at churches, and I gotta just take you around. And she goes, I can't go back to America. I've been there one time. And he said, well, why can't you come back to America? I really wanna bring you around and everything. She says, I can't stomach the idolatry. And he's like, you live in India, you know? I mean, if you go to India, it's like, well, here's what people do in India. Hey, walk into that temple and bow down to that wooden object. It's like so obvious that you're committing idolatry. Well, that's, it's obvious to us because, you know, we're not in that culture. She says, well, yeah, because she says every time I, she said, well, the first time I went to America, I could not handle all the stadiums and all the absolute worship and idolatry of sports. I was like, oh, maybe we do. Well, that's interesting because we kind of are obsessed with sports here. She, and, and she said, and, and all the food everywhere. She said, and everyone, everywhere I go, there's massive signs for food and everything. Everybody, she's like, it's all about going out to eat all the time. It's all, I can't handle the worship of food there. And, and he said he realized in that moment that, okay, well, Maybe it's harder to spot idolatry when it's in your culture. So it, it, here's another way to think about idolatry. It's when you take a desire and you make it a demand, right? It's like, well, what's wrong with wanting to have a kid? Like, nothing, man. That's a good godly desire. Or what's wrong with, you know, wanting to get married? It's like, I understand, you know? It's a good desire. Well, when it becomes unhealthy in your life or any my life or any of our lives is when you take a desire and then you, you bring it up to the level of demand. And so he... he he talks about these idols, and here's what's interesting also about idolatry. Idolatry is, and Tim Keller has this insight, he's a pastor and former pastor in New York City, but he says, idolatry is a mixture of, idols are both powerless and powerful at the same time. So they're powerless in the sense that it's like, they're actually nothing. They're actually part of creation, they actually can't do anything for you. But they're so powerful because they make so many promises, and they ask you to sacrifice so much. So if you ever wonder, like, you know, why does money kind of get, you know, taken up? Why, why does Jesus say, you know, you can't serve God in money? Well, I know the, I actually, I actually know the answer to that. It's because money is the most godlike thing on earth. Because money make, can, only money can make as many promises as God makes. Well, like, I mean, here's what, here's what promise money makes. I will be a shelter for you in the storm. I mean, that's what a 401k is. That's what retirement is. That's, that's what savings count is. That's actually what it is. It's like, well, yeah, 
<laughs> if something bad happens to me, I have this, thank God. You know? Uh, or, um, you know, I will heal you. Well, not of everything, but, you know, you'll certainly get the best medical care, and we'll fly you to the Mayo Clinics, and we'll do whatever, you know? It's like, forget the Holy Spirit as the comforter. I, I've got a lot of money, and that can make my life very comfortable. So you get what I'm saying. So money, money makes a lot of promises. Um, and so what, what ends up happening with these idols is, is, is also, if you ever wonder, like, what are the idols in my life? A good thing would be asked is, well, what am I sacrificing, right? It's like, well, when is food becoming an idol? Well, it's like, well, you've sacrificed your health for it. You know, well, when does work become an idol? Well, you sacrifice maybe your health, maybe your family. You know, that's what, that's what idols ask you to do. They, keep, they keep, say, please keep, you know, please keep sacrificing to me. And so we see this. They, they come, and they have to learn how to live in a culture of idolatry. Here's the second thing I want you to see here. If you look at me, verses 3, it says this. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. So that would be like the chief's, or the, the Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff. Um, his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility. So one of the things to understand about Daniel was he was rich. Well, he came from a rich family, you know. He was wealthy, he was influential, he got to go to the best schools. We're going to actually see him end up leveraging that for good. But he ends up coming out of this kind of really wealthy, uh, very influential family. Verse 4, um, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, in those verses, you, you start to get this picture of very, it's like, well, why were those four men chosen, uh, you know, Daniel and those three guys, and why do they end up having such a huge influence? Well, one of the reasons is the type of men, really they were only teenagers, but the type of men that they were. So if you look back at the passage, you'll see that they were very gifted in so many areas. When, this is a good question to ask yourself. Like, why would you, I don't know how to say it, put yourself together? Why, why would you get a great education, right? Christians have always cared about education. Like, I told you before, there was a famine, and they were freezing, and they built Harvard in five years, right? It's like, well, why did you do that? It's like, well, because Christians have always cared about education. But if you ask somebody, well, like, why would you get an education? Like, the, the, the 101 resolution kind of answer to that is like, well, so you can get a job. And, and that's a fair answer. But that's very low resolution, and it's like, well, yeah, well, having a job is better than not having a job. But uh, the, the biblical answer to why would you put yourself together? Why would you work on your health? Why would you learn skills? Why would you be as educated as you possibly could be? It's so that you could be maximally useful for the kingdom of Christ. It's actually a good thing to know, that because, by the way, if you become all those things, and I don't mean this in any kind of... Um, demeaning way, but then you can come down to another level. You can talk at any level once you understand, once, you, once you've been educated in different things. Like that. And here's what I mean by this. Because I know it, when I say things like this, what goes off in some of your minds, what goes off in my mind is like 1 Corinthians 1. Like, wait, well, it says that, um, you know, God uses the weak to shame the strong. Well, yes, he does use the weak, right? But often, what does he do with the weak? He takes them, he develops them, he trains them, he humbles them, he strengthens them, he equips them. Um, or, you know, a lot of times you've heard this phrase, uh, it's not about your ability, it's about your availability, which is true. But, but I want you to, th and I really want to say this, I really want you to think about this with me. Um, when God wanted to write, to use a human, to use a person to write the first five books of the Bible, who did he choose? Moses. Have you ever read about Moses? Moses received the best education you could receive. How convenient was it for him to live in Pharaoh's house and get an Egyptian education, which was, if you read about it, was the highest of educations you could get. So, well, it starts to make sense. Well, if God wants to write a book that's going to be read by all people, yes, he inspired it and all that, but who's he going to use to write it? Well, somebody who had a great education. Well, okay, well, how, okay, well, that was the Old Testament. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? It's like, okay, well, take the gospel into a new area, and you'll have to deal with philosophy and rhetoric and dialogue and history and... You know, you're going to have to travel, and you're, you're going to have to have conversations. You're going to have to know how to preach. It's like, well, who does he use? He uses the Apostle Paul, who his resume is in Philippians 3. How about um, when he wants to write the only thing we know about the early church officially, the book of Acts? It's the only written down record we have. Who does he use? A doctor. People still to this day, if you take kind of Greek classes, they'll talk about how good Luke's Greek is and how important that is to understanding some of the passages. Okay, so I'm, of course God's using the weak. I'm simply saying that what we see is one of the reasons that these men are going to be maximally useful is they have put themselves together. Now, and I want you to see this. The, the men, if you look again, this is all in verse four. There's several things about them that are so surprising in our culture. First of all, it says that they're young. 
But the, these men, uh, they were between the ages of 14 and 19, so let's just say they were 16 years old. Um, they are rejecting passivity, they are embracing responsibility, okay? They, they, they're not giving in to adult adolescence, um, extended adolescence, emerging adulthood, all these, where you hear kind of adolescence starts at 10 and ends at 40, you know? <laughs> I don't know if you heard the, you know? So, because this is interesting. Um, like, I was reading a book a couple years ago, and it was called um, The Vanishing of the American Adult. It's written by a guy named Ben Sass, very interesting book. But what, what, what Ben says is, and I didn't know this, that when Peter Pan was written, not the, not the you know, it becomes a movie that we all know from Disney, but when it was written, it was a dystopia. I didn't know that. So what, what that means is like, it was written to say the worst thing that ever could happen is a boy would not grow up and become a man. Right? And if you actually understand the story and you read it correctly, you're like, well, that is right, because yeah, you're Peter Pan, you're king of the lost boys, which isn't really much of a kingdom, right? And then what happens is actually all those lost boys grow up and leave. That's what happens in the story. And then remember what happens, and this is classic, what happens with young men today who don't grow up. They meet a real woman and they can't handle her. Right? This, that's a big part of the Peter Pan. He meets Wendy, he cannot handle her because she's a real woman who has real expectations and calls him up to real things. So what does he settle for? Tinkerbell. And what's Tinkerbell? Well, Tinkerbell is like kind of a feminine version of a woman, but not really a true woman. What do men settle for today? Same thing in pornography. And so th th these, these are very relevant ideas. And so it's like, well, how do young men grow up? Well, it's very simple. It's not easy. It's very simple to grow up. You take on upon yourself as much responsibility as you can currently handle. And some of you, that may be very little. It's like, well, you know, considering myself and how little I can do and how little I know, maybe I could do a couple of these things. And then you stand up. And you're stronger than you were. And then you go, well, I'm now I'm the kind of person who can kind of put this and this and this together in my life and have a decent job and get a small little apartment, whatever I can do, and I can do this. And I'm the kind of person who can do this. And then you add more responsibility in your life. So that's the first thing they do. They, they don't waste their youth. Okay, and that's, that's a big warning in Scripture. Scripture says, do not give your youth, um, do not give your youth or your strength to evil. Um, second, second big thing is they don't waste their singleness, you know, and, and it's like that's a big thing because we have a lot of single people in our church, right? And singleness is not purgatory. Um, people view it that way. I mean, they really do. It's like, well, and, and the Bible talks about singleness as a gift. Now, singleness is not a present, okay? A present is something you give somebody at Christmas. You go, here's a present. I love you. I hope you like it. That's what a present is. A present is I'm giving it to you for you, and I hope you like it. A, a, a gift, the language is a spiritual gift. It's like, well, it's actually not about you ultimately, it's a divine enablement for you to do more ministry and mission. That's what singleness is, right? And this is actually good to know, too, that statistically, nine out of ten of you will marry. And even if you marry later in life, you will be married longer than you were single, even if you marry later in life. Like, I mean, because, by the way, when are you really single? Probably 18, right? I mean, no one looks at a 12-year-old and goes, she's single, you know? <laughs> you go, she's 12. Maybe at 18, you're single? Okay, so then you get married at 40. So you were single for 22 years. It's a long time. But say you live a normal life. Let's even shorten it. Say you live to be 75. Okay, well then you were married for 35 years. The, the whole point of that is to say, singleness is a unique season that most of us will not be in forever. And that it will be a shorter season than we're married, even if we get married later in life. I say that to say, it's a time to be used wisely. Here's the third thing they do. Um, they take care of themselves physically. Do you see that? It says they were without blemish. That's talking about internal health and, you know, strength. And then it says that they, uh, they had good appearance. And, you know, and, and sometimes the world goes too much on one level and cares too much about physical appearance, too much about health, too much about all that kind of stuff. But in the church, we can come to the other extent and we can be like the, well, you know, what's it only matters what's on the inside. Maybe, right? <laughs> so, I mean, maybe even the answer is mostly. I mean, I'm trying to be, have a real conversation about it. Like, mostly, maybe, definitely what's most important is the soul. Uh, but we don't want to become more spiritual than God. We are, we are embodied souls. And, you know, we, it, it's like, well, you know, let's just, you know, talk, talk about the obvious. Most people, especially women, uh, wish that men would take care of themselves a little bit more, right? <laughs> especially maybe their physical appearance. It's like, it would be nice if, you know, you'd wear deodorant, if you'd shower regularly, you know, if you would uh, trim your nails more than every full moon, you know, whatever it is, it's like, you know, if you would brush your teeth consistently, use a breath mint, you know, it's like, uh, wear clothes that fit you. I mean, these, I, and I, I'm partially kidding, but these things are actually important. I mean, they're, they're important at a certain level. It's like, well, and this is a good rule to know too, that how do you, how do you want to dress? Well, the answer to that is you want to dress how you want to be treated. 
That's actually how you dress. Dress how you would like people to treat you. Because that, that's actually what they will do. I actually know a guy, and he told me how he, he wears a full suit when he teaches. He's a high school teacher, middle school teacher. And he says, I dress in a full suit. And he goes, because if I wear anything less than a full suit, they don't respect me. Because I look very young, and da, 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 da. but if I show up in a full suit, I communicate to them I'm serious. I communicate to them that I'm their superior. I commu- you get what I'm saying. We don't need to all wear suits, okay? I'm just, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, but it, but it's, it's an important factor. We, we, this is why, you know, we have to have a holistic view of life. It's not, you know, we love God with our mind, our soul, our body, and our strength. Uh, next is, they were very intellectual. I've talked about that. They were, they were very smart. Um, next is, after that, is they were, it says they were competent in various skills. Now, we don't know what skills they were, okay? Here's what we do know. That from, this is a helpful thing. Whenever you're reading a text, you, you look at it and you go, okay, well, it says this here, and then what would be the skills that I would later see them have? And the main skill we see them have later is interpersonal relational skills, it's like, wow, that's important. You know, after your son or daughter coming to faith in Christ, maybe the second most important thing is that they would have good interpersonal skills. But what does that mean? You can navigate and negotiate relationships. If you, and we're going to actually see that. We're going to see that in this chapter. We're going to see that in the rest of the chapters. It's like, that's exactly what you want. I can give you a firm handshake. I can look you in the eye. I can tell you how I feel. I can ask you some questions. We can have a conversation. And, th- and that's going to happen in almost every chapter. We're actually going to see that these men are experts. At, they know how to talk to authority. They know how to talk to one another. They know how to be respectful. They know how to ask questions. They know how to, how to negotiate and think what's best for everybody. And so this is what happens. And then I want you to see what happens after they call these men. I want you to see verse 5, what they do. Verse 5 says this. Um, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. So they're basically at the University of Babylon. Um, that's really where they are. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So, you know, you read this and you go, well, okay, what do they do? They take them out of their culture about 500 miles away. They bring them in. They, you know, they educate them in the language and literature of their day. And then they give them new names. And you go, well, what's, a big de- what's the big deal about that? Well, you know, in the Bible, who's the only person who changes people's names? God. That's what he, we saw that in Abraham. Um, when you change somebody's names, it's like, well, that's the most fundamental thing about you. And, and I don't have time to get into this, but... Um, if you, you can look at this as a community group, if you look at the names, the original names that they have, Daniel and, and others, um, they're, they're, they mean, they direct toward the Lord, they're about worship, they're about following, the, following God, they're about the people of God, they're, they're godly names. These new names are about idolatry and Babylon and their culture, okay? So they're trying to, they're trying to change their identity, right? And we, and we talk about this a lot, you know, there's certain themes that come up a lot in scripture, and well, there's a reason for that, because they're important. A major theme in scripture is identity. Now, if, if, normally, if you say to somebody, um, you know, your identity needs to be in Christ. It's one of those things that Christians nod, and, mm-hmm, you know, they, they, but they don't really know, and we don't really know what that means. What does it mean for my identity to be in Christ? Um, it means that what we find, what Christ has done for us is what is the most important thing about us and what defines and directs our life. Because here, here, let me show you how this works. If anything else is part of your, is your main identity, it will lead either to pride or despair. Think with me about this. So let's take something arbitrarily, like work. Okay, if work is your main identity, then what happens is either you'll be successful at work, um, you'll make more money, whatever that means. You know, it's like you'll, you'll have more people under you, your, your stock will go up, uh, you'll have more flexibility, whatever it means in your industry. It's like, and then if your identity's in that, guess what it means? You become prideful. It's like, well, how could you not? That's, all you, that's how you identify yourself, and it's all going well, and you think it's because of you. Uh, or it leads to despair. Imagine the same thing. You're, you know, you're trying to work, and, it, well, you know, it's like, well, you're kind of embarrassed about your job, and you don't even really like telling anybody what you do because it just reveals that you aren't very educated, you know? And then that's kind of embarrassing, and you feel stuck, and there's not really a lot of upward mobility. So you don't really like talking about what you do. And, but, but at the same time, so much of your identity is in that, right? Now, what makes Christianity unique is Christianity destroys pride and despair simultaneously at the cross. Because here's what happens. At the cross, the cross says, you are so sinful, you better never be prideful because God had to kill his own son because of how terrible your sin is. You can't look at the cross of Christ and be prideful. So it's like, well, okay, so pride's been killed in my life. Okay, what about despair? Well, actually, let me go back. The same God that sent his son 
from heaven to earth to take on flesh, to live a sinless life, did it because of you, because he loves you. And because somehow you're valuable enough for God to die. And if you can live, and none of us live there all the time, but if you can live in that reality, I am a sinner, that humbles me. But I'm saved by grace, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not brought to despair. And I can live in that reality. Now, identity for us in culture is like, well, well and I've thought about this a lot. It's like, well, where do we find our identity? Let me give you a couple areas I think we find it in. Uh, here's a couple areas people say they find their identity. Um, I am what I have. Right? I mean, that's common. I mean, and I'm not, when I say these things, I'm not thinking of any one person, okay, because I'm going to give a couple real specific examples here. But let me tell you how this works in America. I mean, how many Americans are still defined by the car they drive? It's not a sin to have a nice car, okay? We're not saying any of that. But, but some people, I mean, no one in this room, no one in this room, of course, okay? But some people, um, the reason they drive a nice car, it's like, well, okay, you have a car that costs you, I don't know, $1,000 a month for your car payment. But, you, but it's like, is, the reason, is part of the reason you drive a car like that so that you can let everybody know, I'm the kind of person who can do that? And I live in this neighborhood, and none of it's a big deal. I'm just that kind of person. I can spend this much money on a car monthly, and it's not a big deal. Right? I mean, I, Here's, a, here's a kind of a silly, goofy illustration, but I, but I see it. Why does everybody start wearing Patagonia? It's not a sin to wear Patagonia, okay? Half of you are like, I'm wearing it right now, okay? Um, no, but, but it's, like, it's interesting. It's like, well, you know, Patagonia, it's, and it's a nice stuff. I, and by the way, it's like, well, why, you know, why does Kyle know about all this stuff? Because I care about it myself, okay? Because I struggle with all this stuff. Um, but it's like, you know, what, what, is, what, what does somebody say who's wearing Patagonia? Well, I mean... Probably nothing. You probably just like it. Okay, not you guys, but other, what could other people be saying? <laughs> I'm the kind of person who can afford very expensive outerwear. And I look like I go to Boone even if I don't, right? <laughs> I look like I'm outdoorsy even if I'm not, right? And normally it's like, well, you know, I could have bought this and it could have said Columbia on it, but I just paid 75 bucks more to get it to say this on it instead, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, and, and, and it's, it's okay. But, it's, but it, it, what I, I say that in part because I, I've, I'm like, why is it that I want Patagonia? Well, I'm serious. I'm like, what, what is it? You know, it's like, you know, and, and my, I told you something about this. I'm, I try to be pretty open up here, but knowing that everything I say is recorded. Um, um, so it's kind of hard. Um, but, you know, um, you know, my parents both have incredibly nice cars. And, and so whenever I go up to visit them, you know, every once in a while, they're like, hey, Kyle, go jump in the car and go get Chinese. And, you know, I get in the car and I'm like, you ever, if you've ever driven a really nice car, you're like, it's quiet in here, you know what I mean? Anyway, it is, and so it's like, it, it's really nice, okay? And I got in my mom's car the other, this was over break, and I get in my mom's car, and, 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 and I've never seen this before, and the um, speedometer shoots onto the, the windshield. I'm like, wow! Anyway, so I'm driving around, and I just, I just felt about 10 times cooler. You know, and I get it, it's easy to be defined by what we have. So that's the first temptation. The second temptation is, you know, to be defined by what we do. We've talked about that. I won't spend a lot of time on that. But that, that's just good to know. Uh, and what I would say about that is, is a lot of people are defined often by the worst things they've done. And you don't want to do that either, right? It's like, I get it, but, but, but I would not define yourself by your addiction. Like, I get why people do that. Like, people go, well, you know, I'm an alcoholic. It's like, I wouldn't say that. I know why people, I know why people say that. The reason people say that is, the reason that you would say that or people would say that is because you want to communicate, hey, it's a big deal. I could stumble again. It's a lifelong reality in my life. It's a big temptation. I've struggled with this and people need to, I get all of that. But I just would say it shouldn't be your man identity. Uh, here's the third one. I, so not just I am what I have or I am what I do, I am what others say, right? And it's like, well, that's a big one. That starts in middle school and kind of never ends, right? And then you tether yourself to everybody else, else through social media. So this is basically what happens with social media. Not, not everybody, not all the time, but, but this would be a good uh, picture, I think, of what happens in most people's hearts with social media. You decide to put something out there. It's like, and usually it's like the best picture of you, and it's filtered, and you spent 30 minutes on like how you were going to talk about it, right, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and you put it out there, and part of what you're doing is, I wonder if people will like it. I mean, literally like it, or maybe comment, or maybe share. Or, and it's kind of like, and that's a very dangerous thing. And sometimes, you know, in, in my generation, you know, my mid-30s, my generation, I didn't grow up with social media all the time, but as I, as I talk to parents who have very young kids in middle school and stuff, it's very easy to find all of your identity in who people say you are online and how people respond to you. And then the fourth thing is you're not what people have done to you, right? And, that, and I say that pastorally because, man, in, in a room this size, in a church this big, oh, man, so many terrible things have happened to people. 
um, you know, neglect, abuse, abandonment. You may need counseling for them. I'm not saying they're not a big deal. They may be the biggest thing that's happened in your life. But I'm just saying you don't want to ultimately be defined by them. And so what we see is um, he's not defined by these things, and he moves forward. And I want you to see what happens in verse 8. Verse 8 is really um, the key verse in this passage. It says this, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So here's the second conviction. I will live with biblical convictions in my culture. I will live with biblical convictions in my culture. Um, See, here's what ends up happening. Um, They get taken out of their family and friends. That's isolation. That's the first thing that happens. Um, And then they get taught literature and language. That's indoctrination, okay? This is like the classic, like, let's take a guy, and I'm not against secular colleges and all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying, this is like, this is the first people who go to, you know, public college. This is kind of what uh, Daniel chapter one is. It's like, okay, well, okay, leave mom and dad, go to public college, uh, and sit in a religious studies class. That's what's happening here. Go to UNC and sit in a religious studies class, and then they start asking you all these questions, right? Okay. Um, so there's, there's isolation, there's indoctrination, but then here's where everything, this is where it kind of, the rubber hits the road, is compromise. That's the third thing that happens. They're, they're, they're challenged to compromise in a small area of their life, and that's how it works, right? And that's another good thing to know. It's like, if you were asked to compromise in something major in your life immediately, most of us wouldn't do it. You know, you think about someone who's at work, it's like, you know, and the, the person is tempted or, or, or is challenged or, or, or is tempted to, you know, sleep with a coworker who's not their spouse, you know? It's like, well, most people are not going to go there immediately, you know? But you might compromise in a small way. It's like, well, she's cute and she laughs at all your jokes and she understands you like your wife does it and maybe you should make a lot of excuses to go by and talk to her all the time. And maybe you shouldn't tell everybody that you, that you notice how she dresses every day at work. Maybe you should tell no one that you're feeling attracted to her. Do you see how that works? Maybe you should drink too much just once and kind of see what it's like, and then, but you actually might like that, and that's kind of the problem. You know what I'm saying? So what ends up happening with him is Daniel, it's interesting, when you read, you know, Daniel, he doesn't eat meat and he doesn't drink the wine. And, and you know, most commentators, they don't know why that is. Because it's hard to find out, because it's like, well, it's not that it was sacrificed idols, because guess what? The vegetables would have been given to the idols too, so that doesn't work. And it's not that it was unclean food, because the wine would not have been unclean. So this is really, this is really good to know. It's like, well, why does he draw the line at you know, meat and wine? And, and, I, and I actually know the answer to this. The reason that he draws the line there is because you have to draw the line somewhere. It's, it, and, and every time, this is good to know too, every time that you draw the line somewhere in your life, it will seem arbitrary to most people. It's like, well, why won't you watch that Netflix show? It's like, ah, I don't, well, you'll watch other things. I know. I'm, tr- I'm trying to be faithful. I feel like that's crossing the line. I, you know, I, I knew a guy, I'll give you an example. I knew a guy that he said, hey, you know, I'm going to drink in moderation because I don't want to get drunk. And so, you know, my limit is going to be two beers. It's like, you know, and there's other ways. We'll talk about this. You know, you could not drink at all or whatever. But, but he, he just said, this, it's like, well, you know, well, why two? Why not one? Or why not one and a half? Why not three? It's like, well, because I'm trying to be faithful to Christ. I'm trying to draw the line somewhere. I'm trying to live for him, right? It's like, well, whenever I do premarital counseling with a couple and they come over and it's, you know, I'm getting to know them the first time, I always do the same thing. I hear about their stories and all that. And then I, it's kind of awkward for them. It's kind of awkward for me. But at some point, I basically say to them, hey, guys, normally toward the end, I'm like, hey, guys, I don't need details or anything. But I just, can you guys tell me what are going to be your barriers and boundaries for physical intimacy while you're engaged? And it's like really awkward, you know, and, 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 you know, it's like they realize, you know, not in every situation, but realize that they don't, haven't really thought about that or they've already broke them or, you know, they don't want to tell me. And I say, guys, look, it's up to you. It's like, you know, what does God's word say? You, you kind of, you know, but then I want you to try to live that out. And then all I'm going to do is I'm going to, when I meet with you, I'm just going to ask you if you've kept them. I don't need details. I just, I'm going to ask you if you've kept them. And, and see, here, here's the, con- here's the idea here. The idea is that we need biblical truth and personal conviction. Right? Biblical truth, this is such a helpful concept. Biblical truth is the same for every person at every place at all times for every Christian. But your personal conviction is how that biblical truth enters your life and is applied, you know, as you live your life out day to day. So, like, let me give you an example. So, well, let's just stick, because we're there, with uh, drunkenness. It's like, okay, all right, we have a Bible verse. We have the biblical truth, don't get drunk. It's like, well, okay, okay, but we have lots of different ways that people have personal convictions. It's like, okay, I only drink on the weekends. Uh, I only drink this much. I only drink with my wife. I only drink on vacation. 
Uh, I don't drink at all. Whatever it is. It's like, okay, well, great. That's your personal conviction based on biblical truth. See, what gets weird, and I know weird's not a good, that's not a theological word, okay? Um, but, it, but it kind of explains it, because I've actually seen this a lot. What happens in churches, it, where churches go wrong, is they take personal convictions and they make them biblical truths for everybody. And, it nor- and, he, and, I actually, and I actually know how this happens. It normally happens because the senior pastor, he doesn't mean to, he normally gets up and he normally talks a lot about his life. And, and I've seen this. The pastor gets up and says, oh man, I love homeschooling my kids. <laughs> it's great homeschool. I mean, they're home all the time with me and I get to invest in them. And, and then guess what? Everyone, oh, he, homeschool, 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 you know? And then everybody shows up who homeschools. And it's like, well, actually, what's, what's the biblical truth? Educate your kids in the Lord. What's the biblical conviction? Personal biblical conviction. Uh, homeschool, private school, uh, public school, charter school, uh, university model, uh, choose something different every year for each kid based on where they are. It's like, well, that's a good idea, you know? Right? But we, it gets weird otherwise. It's like, what we, and the reason I'm spending some time slowing down and talking about this is because I want us to be free in Christ in our church. I want us to, I mean, we're pretty hard on biblical truth, but we're trying to be very grace-filled in how it's applied in life. And that's good to know, too, because what you actually want to pass on to your kids is at least biblical truth. You hope to pass on personal conviction, right? It's like, or at least you want to say to your kids when they're in your house, well, you're going to do these personal convictions when I go, or while you're here. And then they may leave and say, well, mom, dad, same biblical truth, now I'm 25, I'm going to actually apply this personal conviction a little differently. Like, let me give you a couple more. Um, redeem the time. Biblical truth. Personal conviction, I don't know, how you use your weekends, how much you should work, what rest looks like for you, right? It's like, uh, biblical truth, abstain from evil. Uh, you know, personal conviction, uh, what shows do you watch? Um, you know, biblical truth, give, save, live. Um, personal conviction, you know, how do you set all that up? What are the percentages for you? How does that work out in your life? Uh, you know, biblical truth, be modest. Uh, personal conviction, you know, exactly what you might wear or not. You get what I'm saying? And so, so the, the danger is to take a, there's two dangers. Um, the danger number one is to take a personal conviction and to make it biblical truth for everybody. That's, and that gets really weird really quickly. Um, the, the other one is to take, um, to have, and this is, I think, a bigger temptation in our church, to take biblical truth but never have personal conviction. And so, which is convenient because it means that you always know the right answer to things. It's just not actually applying your, in your life and you're not living it out in any kind of measurable way and it's not actually hitting at the level of, of faith meeting action. And, and so uh, this is what he does. He, he makes this decision. Now, I want you to see what happens next in verse nine. Verse nine says this. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, now God, you know, sometimes people like you because you've got a great personality. Sometimes people like you because the favor of God's in your life. Daniel had favor with this guy. It says this, uh, and the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths, youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? And so he goes to his boss and basically says, hey, I don't want to eat the meat and I don't want to drink the wine. Is that okay? His boss basically says, no, because you know, Nebuchadnezzar's not a nice guy, and, and he wants you guys healthy, and if we don't do this, I could lose my job or my head or both. Uh, and so what I want you to see uh, in verses 11 through 14 is, is something I, w- I really think we need to learn as Christians in this culture. Um, it's to be winsome and wise. I want you to see this. Verse 11 says this, Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. So, so there's two things he does here that I think would be helpful in your marriage and helpful in your business and helpful in your relationships. Um, he, he does two things here that, that I think Christians could be better at. We all could be better at it, but especially Christians. Um, he thinks win-win. Yeah. You, so you see, right, there's, there's, there's a couple different ways to think about things, right? There's, there's win-lose. That's how a lot of people think. I will win and you will lose. What's most important is that I win. That's actually not a helpful way to think. What you actually want to do is, you want to ask this question, what would it be like to win in the best way possible? And the answer is, for you to win and for me to win. That's actually the best, and I'm not idealistic at all. I realize sometimes this can't happen. But, but you want this to happen because... You don't want to win and then live with a bunch of people who lost. 
You know, it's like if you win and everyone loses and you leave and go somewhere else and start your new life, it's like, I guess that might be okay. But if you're going to win and then hang out with everybody around you who lost to you all the time, that's not great. So what he does is he creatively thinks, how could this be a win for both of us? Because, right, if, it, if it's lose-win, he goes, well, fine, I'll break my conscience. I'll eat the food and you won't die. If it's win-lose, it's, well, I'm not going to eat it. You can't make me eat it. And you're going to lose your head, right? He doesn't think that way. He thinks win-win. Second thing he does, and this is super important, is he notices problems and then he figures out what the solution is, and he's part of the solution, and he comes to his superior to talk about it. It's like, wow. Right? Because that's actually the difference between a servant and a critic. A, a, a critic only recognizes problems. Well, let me tell you what's wrong with this church. Let me tell you what's wrong with this business. You know, let me tell you what's wrong with this neighbor. And it's like, not helpful. You know, if you want to be the most annoying person at work, be the person who only notices problems and tells your superior. You know, the best thing you could do, but if you want to be the most valuable person at your work, here's what you do. You notice problems and you think of the solution and you offer to be to help make it happen. It's like if you do that, well, you, well congratulations, because you'll be the most valuable person at your work. Because, well, you're the person who notices problems and then does something about them and, and, and helps make everything better. And so this is what he does. And then I want you to see what happens. Verse 15. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and all dreams. And then look at verse 18. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. So here's a couple teenage boys standing before the most powerful person. It says this, And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Here's the third decision. I will trust God to bless me as I obey him. Well, what, what he does is he makes the hard decision and God ends up blessing him. Now, I'm not saying that every time you, you know, do the right thing, you're going to have more money and more health and you know, be stronger and all that kind of stuff and have better relationships. We, the blessing of God is more complex than that and more sophisticated than that. Um, but, but, it, but I think what, we, what happens in our life is we think, well, if I do the right thing, if I'm godly, if I make the hard decision, if I go against the culture, I'm going to miss out. And Daniel's writing this to tell us the story of how God blessed him. Now, this is what's interesting, because this is by far the most boring chapter in Daniel. And, and all the commentators notice this, too. It's like, well, this book's about to get really exciting. It's about to have lots of dreams. It's about to have visions. It's about to have fiery furnaces. It's about to have lion's dens. It's about to have prophetic you know, visions. It's, it's going to have a lot of different things. It's like, but you read the first chapter. It's like, could, the, could anything be more boring? Um, teenage boys decide to be vegetarians. It's like, oh, boring, right? It's like, no thanks, boring. Um, it, it, and there's a reason for this. I really, I really believe this. It's like, you know, why is this story first? I, I think the reason is because what you realize is what prepared them for the fiery furnace, what prepared them, you know, for the lion's den, what prepared them to confront kings and kingdoms is simple, individual, personal, and private decisions that they made that nobody else knew about. Right? And you know this, actually. I mean, you know this. It's like, you know, everybody wants to change the world. Nobody wants to change themselves. You know, and it's like, well, what? You know, maybe God's going to use you in this city, or maybe God's going to use you in this nation, or I don't know, in your neighborhood, wherever it is, or your business, you know, or your organization, your industry. It's like, well, biblically, the answer is very, very simple of how, of how, um, of how God raises up somebody who changes a city or the world. It's that person who takes personal responsibility for the sins in their life, the areas of their life, and they start repenting. It's like, well, it's like, okay, you want to change the world. It's like, well, here's what you need to do. Work on your fantasy life. Nobody will know about it. You won't get to write about it. You won't get to celebrate it. It won't go on Facebook. No one's going to know it. All right, here's another thing. Work on your alcohol consumption. Figure out how you're going to deal with that the rest of your life. It's like, you know, the room's always so quiet when you talk about these kind of things. It's because everyone's like, well, I don't want to do that. You know, I just wanted to change the world. It's like, you know, it's like, well, and then work on your marriage. It's like, well, if you didn't fight seven times a week with your wife and you could staple your relationships back together and you could not hate your mother-in-law, 
you know, and you weren't so greedy, and maybe you learned how to be generous with, I don't know, a little bit. You did something. You gave a percentage of something. It's like, well, maybe God would do something in your heart. You know, and then and part of, why, by the way, what happens when you do those kind of things is then you realize, well, goodness, it's hard. And so when, you know, some girl comes up to you and says, I'm really struggling with this, you go, well, I understand that. And it took me about four years of having to deal with that to wrestle with that in my own life, and I know how hard it is to change, and so I'm going to be super gracious with you as we do this. But what we see in Daniel is that he made some individual personal decisions. In fact, Daniel made them before the other three guys do. If you go back, we don't need to now. Daniel makes these three decisions, or these decisions before these other three guys do. He ends up having an influence on his friends. It's like, this is why Daniel, or Christ, is the better Daniel. Because what does Christ do? Christ decides he's not going to defile himself, right? Not just with food and drink, right? Jesus decides he's going to take an entire life of perfection and sinlessness. He's going to face every temptation, and unlike you and me, he's going to do the right thing. But what's going to be interesting is Jesus, like Daniel, is going to stand before kings. But unlike Daniel, he's not going to be let go. Instead, he's going to be condemned. He's not going to receive the blessing of God. He's going to receive the curse of God. And why is that? Because he has to go to the cross to die for your sins and my sins and buy all the power and all the grace necessary so that we can do the things that we see here in the life of Daniel. So that we have the ability to see the world according to God's word, so that we have the ability to live with biblical conviction, and so that we can really believe that God's going to bless us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name right now, and we thank you for the example of Daniel, a faithful teenage boy who took responsibility for his life, made hard decisions, Lord, and we know what they are. Most of us know the decisions we need to make. And some of them, it's the exact same decisions. It's food and drink. That's it. We know that that's what it is. It's those, that's where it needs to start. It needs to start something so simple, so basic, but something that's out of control in our life. We need to focus on food and drink. For others, it's a relationship. For others, it's a fantasy life. For others, it's finances. Lord, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. We can't do it by ourselves. This isn't self-help. Lord, we need, we need the gospel. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the power. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.